Hello and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished diplomats. I'm your host, Ben Reams, recording in Washington, D.C. I think friendships and relationships are at the core of diplomacy. I think building trust, which you do through personal relationships, is what it's about. There are those who argue that diplomacy is about money and power, and I reject that. It's about building trust. It's about creating relationships that enable you to do things together. Today, I'm honored to welcome Ambassador Ted Osius. Ambassador Osius has an incredibly unique CV. He was an American diplomat for 30 years, during which time he served in such positions as political minister counselor in New Delhi, deputy chief of mission in Jakarta, and ambassador to Vietnam. And for foreign languages, he racked up Vietnamese, French, and Italian, a bit of Japanese, Indonesian, Hindi, Thai, Tagalog, and Greek. But especially interesting about Ambassador Osius is that after leaving government, he joined Google Asia Pacific as vice president for government affairs and public policy and was the first vice president of Fulbright University, Vietnam. He's now the president and CEO of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. He's written a number of articles and books, most recently, Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam, which covers the two countries' 25-year journey from adversaries to friends and partners. I'm also pleased to be joined today by fellow diplomat Roshni Narodi, live from Indonesia, and Sama Kuba and Syed Ahmed, live from Cambridge, Massachusetts. One quick disclaimer, Roshni and I are Foreign Service Officers, and this interview is being conducted in our personal capacities. Any views she or I express are our own and not necessarily those of the U.S. government. Ambassador Osius, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I have a copy of your latest book, but I'd like to start before it begins. I'm interested in how you became interested in diplomacy and what your path was into the State Department. Actually, it's pretty simple. I took a year off between high school and college, and I went to the Middle East. And I spent some time in Israel and then some time in Egypt and Jordan and Syria. And I thought, wow, these cultures are really different from my own, and this is really interesting. And being a naive 19-year-old, I thought, well, we should be able to fix this. We're Americans. So it was really from that moment on that I determined I would be a diplomat. And actually, we didn't fix the problems in the Middle East. They still exist, but American diplomats work on them all the time. And I've never regretted that choice. I loved my 30 years as a diplomat. So in the finest of foreign service traditions, did they actually send you to the Middle East or did they send you somewhere else? (laughs) Well, I spoke Arabic, so it would have been quite logical. And I think if I had asked to go, I would have ended up being sent somewhere in the Middle East. But right at the beginning, in A100, the training class for new diplomats, I made the decision that Asia is really where a lot of things are happening. And I was a political officer, and I thought it'll be much more interesting to report from places where there's good news as well as bad news. And at that time, there wasn't much good news coming from the Middle East. And there was actually a fair amount of good news coming from Asia. I could see that There were a lot of countries that were developing fast. There were success stories, as well as really tough situations like that with North Korea. I spent almost all of my career in Asia or working on Asia, and I loved every minute of it. So, Roshni, that might set you up for your question. Yeah, thanks very much, Ben. And thanks, Ambassador Osius, for 
telling us a little bit about what I see as a common element in across your many varied chapters of your professional life, which is Southeast Asia. Yes. When you look back on the various chapters of your life across Southeast Asia, in Thailand, the Philippines, your time as deputy chief of mission during a really important time at Mission Indonesia, how did those chapters all stack up to shape your career, your thinking about this part of the world, and also maybe set you up for success in shaping U.S.-Vietnam relations more powerfully as U.S. ambassador there? It's interesting. I really concentrated on Southeast Asia because my first posting was there. I was posted to Manila, and I thought it was fascinating. And I decided the tectonic plates are still moving in this part of the world, and that means we get to have an impact. And I felt in Southeast Asia, all kinds of things are possible. Sorry to draw on the book title, but I really did think that nothing was impossible in Southeast Asia. So I've lived in five Southeast Asian countries. I've worked in all 10 ASEAN nations. And I'm actually right now the president and CEO of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. So that attachment to Southeast Asia continues. And again, I really loved it. I love that part of the world. I love the dynamism. I love the fact that the cultures and languages and backgrounds are so different. There's no Brussels. There's no real center of gravity Closest there is is Jakarta because that's where the ASEAN headquarters is. But you ask a Vietnamese or a Malaysian, mm. where's the center of Southeast Asia? And they'll say Kuala Lumpur, Hanoi, or whatever their capital is. Amazing. This leads to a different question for me, which is as a Southeast Asianist or someone who's focused on that region, do you think that diplomats benefit by focusing their interests and going deep into the language, the culture, the history of one particular region, or by embodying this generalist identity? Well, as you know well, there's no one-size-fits-all in life and diplomacy. In my very first assignment, the DCM gave me a really good piece of advice. He said, if you plot your career based on what you think will get you promoted and what you think will lead to success in the future, he said, it won't really work. If you choose jobs that you're passionate about, if you choose places and jobs that you love, well, you'll do well, you'll shine, you'll excel in those jobs, and your career will work itself out. So I kept choosing jobs that I thought would be interesting. So I think that's the way to go is just find what you're interested in. I had no idea at the beginning that I would spend most of 30 years in Asia. Fantastic. Thanks. Sama, do you want to jump in, ask a question, maybe going back a little bit in time? Yes. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us today. As a Harvard student, I couldn't help but notice your educational background of also going to Harvard. So as someone who's really interested in this field, I had to ask, did Harvard prepare you well for the world of diplomacy? Are we wasting our time? <laughs> and what advice do you have for college students like us who do want to go into diplomacy? Well, you're definitely not wasting your time. I mean, I spent some time at Harvard learning about the Middle East and learning Arabic and I ended up going to Egypt as my first job. So you might say, well, I didn't then spend my time in the Middle East. Was that a waste of time? No, I don't think so at all. What Harvard did was really whet my curiosity for solving international problems and for being engaged in the world. It wasn't so much the specific courses. It was the feeding one's curiosity that happens at Harvard. I had learned a lot of very specific skills 
at SAIS. When I went to get my master's degree at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and I would say that was a much more precise preparation for the work I subsequently did. Specifically, learning international economics was very helpful at every stage. It wasn't my favorite topic at all, but it was crucial, and it certainly enabled me to have a job that was a real launching pad, which was to work as trade and Asia advisor to Al Gore when he was vice president. The specific skills I learned at SAIS, not as an undergrad. Thank you. Sir, you got into talking about your role at the U.S. ASEAN Business Council, and if some people heard the title, they might think that the council focuses on ASEAN as the multilateral organization. But if I understand it correctly, it's more about the region. I would love to know your thoughts, though, about ASEAN as the multilateral organization and what it can do from your perspective in helping develop business ties with U.S. companies. I would love to know what the private sector perspective is on that. Well, we have 173 member companies, and they're some of the largest companies in the world. Cumulatively, they represent $7 trillion in income each year, and they employ 14.5 million people. So they have different interests, those companies. Many of them are focused on one or two or three of the ASEAN nations, but some are also active really throughout the ASEAN region and are aware that ASEAN is a real thing. It's not like Brussels. It's not where rules are made and everybody follows them, but it's an institution where consensus is built around really important matters and where rules of the road are developed in the ASEAN way, which is consensus-driven, and where the effort has been to integrate those economies as much as possible, and also to respect the differences. So there's broad differences within ASEAN, and that institution is very malleable as a result and fluid in its ways. And understanding that institution and how it works is quite important to the United States. And I think understanding that diverse part of the world with 662 million people and a GDP of 3.2 trillion and some of the fastest growth rates on the earth, understanding that is really in our interest and really important. Yeah, I can't help but follow up with the question about the elephant or the dragon in the room, which is China, because so much of Washington is focused on whether the different C's, whether it's compete or contain or contest. And I'm curious what your perspectives are on what the U.S. State Department can and should do with respect to China in that realm. Well, typically, when it comes to China, the White House is in the driver's seat. And that has been true from administration to administration for decades. It's the most important bilateral relationship that exists, I believe. And going forward, it will continue to be the most important relationship for quite some time. Talking about a rising power and a status quo power, traditionally, there's going to be tension. And certainly, we're seeing a lot of tension right now. My perspective is that of working with the countries that border China, that are near China, and that are always on a daily basis dealing with the reality of China. None of those countries want to have to choose between the United States and China. And if we force them to choose, we wouldn't necessarily like the result. Okay. So it's really important, I think, to the United States 
to carve out enough space for the ASEAN countries to remain independent and to be the ones who choose their own fate. That's always how we approach things with Vietnam. We talked about a strong, prosperous, and independent Vietnam. And who do you think we're talking about it being independent from? Hmm. Vietnamese won't take instructions from anybody, certainly not the United States. And their whole history shows that they won't take instructions from China. And they'll resist foreign domination from anyone, but most particularly from China. And I think that is true to a greater or lesser degree with many of the other ASEAN countries as well. They want their independence. They want to choose their own way. And ties to the United States, a strong relationship to the United States, including private sector relationship, is very helpful to them to achieve their own aspirations and not be dominated by anybody else. I think that's a good transition to talking about your extensive career in Vietnam. Roshni, you'd like to take up the first question with that? Sure. Ambassador, I'd love to ask you about something that you wrote about quite extensively in your book, which was the role that cycling played in your outreach in Vietnam. And I was wondering whether you could first tell us a little bit about that and elaborate on that idea. Where did it come from? Yeah, well, it starts with the fact that I love to bike. I'm really happy when I get on a bicycle seat behind the handlebars. And I'd really developed this affection for biking probably in my early 30s. So the very first time I went to Vietnam, I thought, oh, it would be really fun to ride from Hanoi to Saigon. And that's about a 1,200-mile ride. But in fact, it was really fun. I got a group of nine cyclists together from a bunch of different countries, and we learned so much about the country. We were there in the mid-90s at a time when Vietnam was pretty poor. Half of the country lived below the poverty line, living on less than $2 a day. There were very few cars and there were tons of bicycles. So we were moving at the prevailing pace when we traveled around the country. We traveled from north to south. We learned about the rice cycles. That's actually quite important if you want to understand Vietnam's culture. And we talked with people a lot. People would ride along with us and they'd be quite shocked when they'd see me and I'd looked the way I do, and I'd speak Vietnamese with them. So then when I went back as ambassador, I had the model in my head of Kathy Stevens. Kathy was a very successful ambassador to the Republic of Korea, and she twice rode the length of the peninsula as ambassador. And these were very effective public diplomacy events, outreach events. And I thought, well, why can't I do that? I love to bike. So I ended up biking all over. We did one really long ride from Hanoi to Hue with a lot of people, but we did shorter rides up in Hazang on the Chinese border and down in the Delta and through the highlands of central Vietnam. Again, I was going at the prevailing pace and I wasn't in a limo with tinted windows or flying over the country in a plane. I was there and I was accessible. And I can tell you, most of the members of the Politburo don't ride around among their constituents on bicycles. So the fact that the U.S. ambassador did it meant something to the people of Vietnam. And people knew I would stop and chat with villagers and have meals in roadside stalls. I think I was able to show how much I loved Vietnam, how much I appreciated its culture, valued its language and its history, and was interested in the lives of its people. And I think it was a really good outreach tool, but it just started from the fact that I love biking. 
I'm curious to know, do you think that more of this sort of diplomacy by doing rather than just talking strategy, could that benefit the way that diplomats and maybe diplomacy writ large are viewed around the world? Is that something that you think has the potential to increase our ability to stay relevant? I think definitely. So it was kind of surprising to me that when I observed the ceremonies around Tet, this is the Vietnamese New Year celebration, I took my family, and I don't have a typical American family. I had a husband who's not the same color as I am and a son. We were not an Aussie and Harriet family. But we went to West Lake in Hanoi, and a few days before Tet, we released carp into the water. Now, you'd say, well, what does that have to do with being a diplomat? Well, I was showing respect to an important Vietnamese tradition, which is on the day of the kitchen gods, you release carp into the water. And basically, they deliver a message to the gods about whether you've been naughty or nice that year. And people loved it. It went absolutely viral. And one of the journalists came up to me and said, when you crouch down there near the water and put the fish in, we were all really happy. If you'd been the Chinese ambassador, we would have pushed you in. <laughs> but it was that we were there as a family, accessible, showing respect to an important Vietnamese tradition. And that taught me something really important. That was way more powerful than any press release, any policy statement, mm. any policy speech. So every Tet, I did something. I would make ban chung, or I would do calligraphy, and I released carp into the water in North, South, and Central Vietnam. I found ways to show respect for that tradition and other traditions. And it had, again, a huge impact on the way I and the United States were perceived, because we were perceived as respectful. We respected the culture, history, and traditions of a country that we were trying to become friends with. And that respect opens doors. Respect is free. It costs you absolutely nothing, and I think it gets you everything. And I think sometimes the United States has a hard time showing respect to others. But it is crucial if we want to accomplish what is important to us, which is to have vibrant, strong partnerships around the world and to do things together with other countries. Speaking of respect, in the opening of your latest book, you talk about this challenge where you were trying to honor the South Vietnamese dead at a cemetery. And you had a visitor who suggested that you try honoring the people who died rather than honoring the dead. I will confess, I didn't fully understand the distinction. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what the thinking was and what you learned from that. Thank you. The story is about Bien Hoa Cemetery. And I first heard about Bien Hoa Cemetery when I was visiting with Ngai Mi Gop Viet, Vietnamese Americans in Orange County. And they told me that it's really important to clean up this cemetery where many Southern soldiers are buried. Now, cemeteries turn out to be very important places, as we have learned as a result of our own civil war. They're heavy with symbolism. And it took us a long time after our civil war. Some would say we're still litigating that. And the visitor was Drew Gilpin Faust, the president of Harvard University. And she had written about the American Civil War. And she understood the symbolic importance of cemeteries. And what the people 
in Orange County were asking for was pretty simple. They didn't want the graves to float away. That was desecration in their view. And they wanted to be able to cut down some trees and dig some ditches so that the graves wouldn't float away. It was really quite simple. So in this discussion that you mentioned, I raised with the vice foreign minister, said, couldn't we just let them dig ditches and cut tree roots? It's not about the dead with a capital T and a capital D. It's not symbolic. It's not about flags. It's just about cutting down some trees and digging some ditches. And first, he was quite resistant. He said, this is a really sensitive subject. This is at the core of our civil war. But I was pretty determined. So I went to the chairman of Binzhuang province, where the cemetery is located. And we talked about economic development and all things you usually talk about. And then I said, look, what I'm really here for is to ask permission for these people to dig some ditches and cut some trees down. And I said, nothing more, no flags no symbolism, just ditches and tree roots. And he said, let me see what I can do. And he was able to do it. He was able to get permission from Hanoi to allow Vietnamese Americans to come in and tidy up the graves. And right. it was just taking some very simple, non-symbolic, non-heralded steps mm -hmm. without flags, without pageantry, just with some shovels and some axes. Yeah. It seems like the lesson there is about shrinking the problem down a little yes. bit yes. and making incremental progress. Very much so. I think reconciliation is a step-by-step -step process. It's person-by-person -person in a way. If you can make little incremental progress here and there, you're building momentum towards reconciliation that is quite meaningful. And it's what all the people who came before me to Vietnam did. And what I tried to do in the book is tell their stories. Right. I tried to make it clear there are a lot of heroes in this story. There are people who took great risks for something that was politically unpopular, the process of reconciliation between two former enemies. People well-known like John McCain and John Kerry, and people not so well-known like some of their Vietnamese counterparts and some Vietnamese whose names are not household words even in Vietnam. And I tried to tell their stories because I think it was those individual acts of courage that led to something quite meaningful, which is a relatively quick reconciliation between two very bitter adversaries. Yeah. About the role of a diplomat in reconciliation, which is unique, I was just wondering if there was something about that experience that inspired you to write this book in particular, or there's a particular moment, why now? Well, I had to write this book. I was compelled to write this book because I dealt with Vietnam off and on for now it's been 30 years. And I felt I'd had the privilege of a front row seat at a very significant chapter in American history and in Vietnamese history. And that was how that period, that arc of going from enemies to friends. And I felt their stories need to be told. So I didn't write a policy book. I wrote a book of stories of individuals who took risks for something that was bigger than themselves. And I start with McCain because he's a very pivotal figure in this story. And he took great risks. And he took risks for a relationship with a country that had treated him very, very badly. So he put the interest of his country 
above his own personal interest. And I think that's a story worth telling. And he also developed friendships, including a bipartisan friendship with John Kerry that were very significant in the process of diplomacy. And I think friendships and relationships are at the core of diplomacy. I think building trust, which you do through personal relationships, is what it's about. There are those who argue that diplomacy is about money and power, and I reject that. It's about building trust. It's about creating relationships that enable you to do things together and build trust. That is, to me, the core of diplomacy. And I thought that lesson is relevant not just for the United States and Vietnam, but other places in the world where we're engaged. I think the lesson of reconciliation, I tell it through the story of Vietnam, but it is relevant elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But is it relevant in other instances? I think so. And it'll be for the reader to decide whether I'm right or not. I would love to pick up on that thread. Something, Ambassador, that really fascinates me about your experiences, the importance of really connecting with the places that you've served in, speaking the languages, learning about the cultures, taking the external facing actions to really get the stories that underlie the policy. And something that I find really interesting about this is that a lot of your career has been spent in larger embassies. And some might argue that many of the United States' large embassies around the world have become sort of mini Washingtons, that they're very inwardly focused and maybe overly focused on paper production, on internal processes, on navigating these somewhat steep hierarchies, often at the expense of exactly that outward-facing, external-facing work and outreach that allows for the kind of engagement that you really seem to thrive on and champion. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Do you think that as an organization, the State Department is properly empowering more junior diplomats, especially to engage in external facing work and to espouse some of the ideals that you've built your career on? Well, it's a really interesting question. I believe that one of the smartest things that the State Department does is invest in language training. Because when diplomats go out with a language, then they're able to talk with all kinds of people about what's happening in that country. And they're able to understand something about what's happening that gets you beneath the surface. And when you go out and you're stuck in that big embassy and you're not engaging with people, perhaps because you don't speak the language, then you're not doing your job. When I led embassies, I always told my officers, if you're spending all your time in front of your computer screen, if you're just feeding the beast in Washington, you aren't doing your job. If you're not getting out and meeting somebody new every day, if you're not picking up the phone or connecting one way or another with local people, you're not doing your job. Answering emails is not doing your job. And I think fate worse than death is just becoming a bureaucrat. And I think the job of a diplomat is to get out there and understand what's going on, get beneath the surface, and then interpret it for the leadership in Washington. So I think it's true that our big embassies can become these little mini Washingtons, but we must resist with all of our energy that, because that is not practicing diplomacy. Practicing diplomacy is getting out there, showing respect, understanding what's going on, interpreting it, and conveying that back to Washington. Awesome. Thank you. That's great. 
Sahed, do you want to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ambassador. I wanted to jump back to 2018 when you disagreed with the Trump administration's efforts to deport Vietnamese refugees who came to the U.S. after the Vietnam War. You later resigned from the State Department and moved to Vietnam. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what you thought some of the lessons learned for both you personally and the department was. So it's kind of a long story, and I won't tell the whole thing, but I decided it was really important to know what ethical lines you won't cross. As a U.S. diplomat, you can't freelance. You have to obey the instructions of your leadership, your democratically elected leadership, as long as you can. And when I decided to stay on after Trump was elected, I had to endure some difficult things. I didn't agree with withdrawing from the Paris Accord. I didn't like the Muslim ban. I didn't agree with pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I'd worked very hard to bring Vietnam into. But when it really was worst was when I was being asked to do things that I thought were wrong. And that was to accelerate the deportation of Americans of Vietnamese origin who had left Vietnam after 1975, after the fall of Saigon. These were people who'd fought next to us alongside our soldiers. In some cases, they were the children of our soldiers. And they'd arrived in a foreign land without the language. And some of them went astray. Some of them arrived as kids and got in trouble, got arrested for one thing or another. And there was a guy named Tuan who stole a car, served several years in prison, then got out and then got his life in order and got married and owned a supermarket, had 50 people working for him, was paying half a million dollars a year in taxes to the United States. And then the Trump administration came after him, arrested him, threw him in jail and deported him to Vietnam for a crime that he'd committed many, many years before and had already served time for. This was a racist policy. If those people were Norwegian, would Stephen Miller have gone after them and tried to eject them from the country? No, it was because they were brown. That's what the policy was about. And I thought it was about as un-American as anything I could think of. And within the system, before I resigned, I tried everything to stop it and to slow it down. Is there a deep state? Well, yes, in a way there is, because those of us who are in government could do things to slow down bad policies. And this was a terrible policy. And I wrote to Rex Tillerson, and I wrote to Jim Mattis and General McMaster, and I did everything I could inside the system to slow down this process. And I said, you're going to screw up the visit of President Trump to Vietnam in November 2017 by pursuing this policy. I did everything I could. And ultimately, my views and those of the Trump administration could not be reconciled. And the only choice I felt I had was to resign. I wanted to be able to face my children and say, this is what matters. I wanted to be able to say, your papa did the right thing. And I did not want to carry out this racist, wrong policy. So I went public. A few months after I resigned, I felt no longer bound to stay silent about something that had been happening behind closed doors, was not out in public. I felt it was my duty as a citizen to speak out and say this was wrong. And fortunately, others agreed, and it entered the political process. And in fact, during the midterm elections, several Republicans who'd supported this policy and had constituencies that were heavily Vietnamese American lost their jobs. 
That's the political process at work. But keeping the secretive policy run by Stephen Miller in the dark is not how the system is supposed to work. And I believe that I did the right thing. And I think there are times when we simply have to say no. As citizens, no, we will not do this. Thank you, sir, for your candor and your courage in that. Speaking only for myself, but I'm sure for others as well. Kind of a hard shift, though, but chronologically. So now you're, at this point, thrust into the private sector. And having spent 30 years at the forefront of foreign policy, I imagine now you're going into a whole new set of systems and, well, forms of bureaucracy, even though Google, the first place you landed, was known as being very flat. We have these specialties, management, consular work, public affairs, political and economic work. And when you step into the role as a DCM or deputy chief of mission or ambassador, you're taking on all of them, whether you came up from the consular ranks or the economic ranks and you're doing it all. And I'm just curious what that was like for you when you then moved to the private sector and you must have seen a whole new set of offices and departments that deal with the same issues, public affairs, management, obviously economics. I'm just curious if there were lessons that you learned for the State Department or for yourself personally and anything that we could take away from that. It wasn't like it might have been a transition to just any old company. It was a transition to Google, which is an interesting place. If I had gone to work for Exxon, say, it might have been more familiar in some ways because Exxon's pretty hierarchical. But I went to, as you said, a company that's very flat. It's big. It's well over 100,000 employees, but it is quite flat. And that was a little bit discombobulating in that it took a while to figure out how decisions were made. When you're in the State Department, or especially when you're an ambassador, you make a recommendation, and it goes up the chain, and then an answer comes back. Either they support what you're recommending or they don't. And you can figure out through hierarchical processes what the position is, what your instructions are. And at Google, it was kind of chaotic. I mean, I was always trying to figure out, well, who is making this particular decision? How can I get this decision be made? And it wasn't terribly efficient, but it was quite inclusive and what really struck me was that it was debates over a lot of the same issues that we had when I was in government, that Google is pretty good at making money. So the debates weren't, how can we increase quarterly profits? They were, well, how can we better support democracy? How can we hmm. do things that benefit society? How can we boost the opportunities of small businesses to recover from COVID? It was quite surprising to me that in many ways my work felt like public service again, because Google is actually quite committed to a single mission, which is bringing the world's information to everyone. It's very democratic mission. They want the fishermen in Bangladesh to have access to the same information as the prime minister of Singapore. Huh. And Google wants its products to be useful to everybody, to make lives better. And it's quite an idealistic place. So the mission aspect of it was actually fairly familiar because hmm. I knew what it was like to be in public service and be trying to make the world better one way or another. The other thing I liked was the respect that Google, I thought, showed to its employees, the commitment to training and to diversity and to inclusion, I thought was 
quite genuine and the desire to develop talent, to build on talent, because Google is an innovation company and recognizes that its strongest asset is its people. Mm -hmm. Now, the State Department doesn't always behave that way. <laughs> I wish it did. I think at its best it does. But there are plenty of times where in the State Department, you feel kind of on your own and you don't feel a tremendous amount of support from the institution. But you might feel support from individuals. You might feel support yeah. from your colleagues, from mentors, from a boss. Yeah. And that's important, but sometimes it's not enough. I think the retention and development of talent is what we need in the State Department. That's super fascinating in a lot of ways. I think that it's always a struggle in our bureaucracy that moves slow. And I think COVID was difficult, but I will say I've been impressed by how we've adapted to teleworking and a lot of other things that, in all honesty, I thought was going to be a train wreck. And personal opinion again, but we have come out and helped a lot more people than I thought was going to be possible. Good, But I can't speak for everybody, obviously. Everybody's had a different experience. So going back to the Google question, Syed had a question about that. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think the role that businesses should play in foreign policy? How should our world adapt to consider such stakeholders like Google, Apple, or Meta? Should they get a seat at the United Nations, for example? What are your thoughts on that? So I think we're still in a world where sovereignty matters. I still think it's governments, especially democratically created governments, that are best positioned to interpret the will of the people. It doesn't mean that companies should have no influence at all. I work with 173 companies on a daily basis who are quite interested in policy matters, regulatory matters. What they often are able to do is engage with governments to say, look, we see what you're trying to accomplish with X regulation, but let us help you figure out a way to do it that will actually help you achieve your aspirations. And I think it's good for voices of the business community, as well as NGOs and civil society and labor unions and environmentalists to be heard when policy is being made. So I think the private sector is part of the mix private sector relations are often the ballast in a relationship. The ties between companies and the ties that keep our private sectors engaged are what helps relationships get through really rough waters at times. And I've seen that again and again in my work where it was private sector ties and people-to-people -people ties that were the bedrock of a relationship. I'll pass the last question over to Roshni. Great. Thanks, Ben. I know we started with a personal question, so maybe it's fitting to end with a rather personal question. But Ambassador, you've been a pioneer for the Foreign Service in so many different ways. And in your book, you write quite a bit about your experiences managing parenthood, managing your personal and professional responsibilities. And you were also part of a tandem couple with your husband, Clayton, an incredibly talented Foreign Service officer as well. I was wondering, having managed so many seemingly competing demands on your time, do you have any advice for those of us who are trying to navigate multiple careers, parenting, the demands of an international lifestyle like the Foreign Service? Well, it's really hard. It's really hard. In many ways, I suppose, would be easier just to stay in one place if you've got a two-career family. But 
We met in the Foreign Service. Clayton and I met through Glyfa, which used to be called Gays and Lesbians and Foreign Affairs Agencies. And it was one of the great things that I got from the Foreign Service was my <laughs> husband. And then when, against all odds, I got my dream job and was able to go overseas as ambassador to Vietnam, I was shocked. I really thought that at some point, the fact that I was not only out, but I had children. It was really obvious that we were a gay couple. I thought that would get in the way of being confirmed, or I thought it might be an obstacle to becoming ambassador, and it was not. This was a time when John Kerry was Secretary of State, and he was very supportive of equality, always has been. And then I thought it might get in the way of me being effective as ambassador to Vietnam, because it's a very conservative society. Hmm. And so we didn't know what exactly how we would be received when we arrived, because not only were we this odd shape, multicolored family, but we were arriving with my mother, who was in her mid-80s. She was helping us out with our infant son and later our infant daughter. And that actually helped because Vietnamese could relate to a three-generational family. Even though we were two men, they could relate to us. We were dealing with all the things that they were dealing with in trying to raise children and keep a family together. So in the end, I don't think it hurt at all. In fact, I think in many ways it helped because there were a lot of people in Vietnam who found it liberating to see a very visible gay couple. And people would come up to us all the time and say, thank you for what you're doing. At a certain point, this was right after Obergefell, after the decision to make our marriage legal in all 50 states. We had a visit from a very special lady, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I asked her if she'd be willing to preside over renewal of our wedding vows. This took a little bit of chutzpah, but she said, yes, she'd like to. And we'd been married 10 years at that point. And we thought, well, this is a political statement. We'll be able to show the people of Vietnam that our marriage is accepted and has the imprimatur of the Supreme Court of the United States. It turned out to be actually quite powerful for us because... We had children, and we, you know, when you have children, you know what marriage is really about. It's really about them. It's really about how yeah. do you create a place where children can thrive. So that was a lesson for us that goes way beyond politics. I've been asked this question by young Vietnamese often, and my answer has always been, be who you are. You'll be good at that. You won't be so good at trying to pretend to be somebody else. So be who you are. That's when you have the best chance of having a satisfying life, a life that has love and purpose. Ambassador, you've given us so many taglines for this <laughs> podcast already. It's great. I can't believe you had your vows renewed by the notorious RBG. RBG yes. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> Ambassador, just one last question. For folks who are interested in your book, Nothing is Impossible, can you tell them a good place to find it? Oh, thank you. It can be bought wherever people buy books online. I know it's on Amazon. Rutgers University Press has a website, and it's available throughout the world at this point. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you so much. So with that, sir, on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to offer our sincere thanks for joining us today. This episode was brought to you as part of a Una Chapman Cox Foundation project on American diplomacy and the Foreign Service. The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, manages the podcast series. If you're interested in exploring a career in the State Department, please visit careers.state.gov. And to find out more about the practice of U.S. diplomacy, 
please visit uccoxfoundation.org or 25yearapprenticeship.com or the American Academy of Diplomacy. Finally, please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the State Department can find us. And if you have questions or suggestions, please contact benreams at adst.org. Thanks very much.